This Tome Show production is supported by Noble Knight Games, where out of print is available again, and by listeners like you. Keep using the affiliate links for Amazon and the dndclassics.com and support the show while you shop. Welcome to the News Desk. Once a month, we get together to chat about the latest news in D&D, and your two anchors today are me, Sam Dillon. And I'm Jeff Greiner, and we're here to talk about the D&D news from July of 2013. And reporting for us live from the tubular streets of Sigil is our monstrous reporter, Randall Walker. Yeah, here in Sigil. (laughs) Randall, how are things doing out there on the Great Wheel? (laughs) Donut-shaped. It's like a big bagel. (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an everything bagel gone wrong. Nice. Toasted. So, that's right. <laughs> All right, Randall. <laughs> yes, sir. We've got you up for the first lightning round uh, item. So okay. why don't you tell us about, the, uh, tell us about all that? Okay. Um, if I believe that what you told me earlier, <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about the Creo figures. Yeah, you are. Creo. Okay. So here's the deal, guys. Hasbro has a um, has a uh, a toy that is a building block Lego compatible um, toy that's called Creo, and uh, they are finally coming out with Dungeons and Dragons themed Creo minifigs that we've seen so far, and I'm guessing probably playsets sometime in the future if they go well. Um, they were uh, I think released at or shown for the first time over at San Diego Comic Con. And um, I'm not sure what the reception was, but I think everyone, at least from from Twitter that I saw, thought they looked pretty darn cool. I was almost certain one of the figures looked like Morden Kanan. Hmm. Almost certain one of them did, um, and one looked like Dritz. So yeah, I, I uh, know the the promo mm-hmm. image they show is Dritz fighting the Thousand Orcs. Right. So it was. Um, it looks pretty cool. Um, being a huge, gigantic Lego fan. Um, these are certainly ones I'll probably pick up. Um, uh, it really has surprised me that Hasbro hasn't utilized this property to do this before. Um, but it's finally, uh, they're finally waking up and realizing that, oh, maybe Dungeons and Dragons isn't completely (laughs) unknown or unheard of. This could be useful. Um, I think I would really like to see monsters. I'd really love to put together a a Creo Beholder, hint, hint. (laughs) A Creo Dragon or a Creo Mind Flayer. And um, so let's do this. And uh, I think those are really cool. I'm kind of, I'm really excited about these. Um, now, uh, in, a, in other words, the, the things that would be awesome to see from the D&D Creo line would be things that are not possible in typical like Lego or building block compatible. I mean, and, and those are the things, the beholders, the displacer beasts, the, the stuff that the is D&D, product identity. The D&D properties, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. the actual D&D creatures that, you know, you're not going to find anywhere else. Right. Um, you know, Lego might come up with a unicorn or something, but they're not, you know, that's different. And they've come mm-hmm. up with dragons, and actually a lot of the creatures that they have, particularly with the Lord of the Rings line and stuff like that, they're, they're great and they have a great D&D theme, but to, for Asbro to actually utilize the property... Um, that's Dungeons and Dragons. I think that's exciting. Um, it means that it's kind of an, it means that it's brand importance, and I think that's uh, I think that's a big deal. So mm-hmm. very excited about that. Um, check them out. Very cool. Well, I think I think uh, on on that same tone, you know, any sort of brand recognition for D and D as a product as a whole is good for the RPG. That's true. So you know, right. Very good. Uh, and I'm going to talk about a couple of things very quickly. Um, first, I'm going to talk about the they are doing an e-signing event for the Sundering um, through uh, I'm at thir- the Thurberhouse.org site, um, looking at their their stuff going on. Uh, this is Wednesday, August 14th. There is a panel discussion from 7 to 8:30 and a Q&A. Book signing to follow. Um, there's an e-signing information going on on the same page. Um, they're talking to R.A. Salvatore, Aaron Evans, and Ed Greenwood. If I'm not mistaken, that is right at the before Gen Con, yes? August 14th? Uh, yeah, that's I think, the day yeah. before. I think the 14th is the day I get into town for Gen Con. And so I, you know, they're going to be over in, in, in Columbus, Ohio, do that. I, I assume that's what, what, when it says Columbus Museum of Art, I assume that means Columbus, Ohio. Uh, good question. I yeah. don't know. Uh, unless there's another Columbus Museum of Art. I 
do not know the Indianapolis well, what, Indianapolis Convention Center. When I when I click on the link for the map, thing. when I click on the link for the map, it sends me to Columbus, Ohio. So yeah, okay. so they're in Columbus, Ohio, but I you know that's not too horribly far away for them to do that no. and then head over to Gen no, Con uh, afterwards. So no, it's like an eight hour drive or something. If that, yeah. So that's going on, and then along with that, I also wanted to mention that they have re-announced mm-hmm. the Arena of War pre-registration op- opportunity. Arena of War being their uh, mobile game, uh, iOS and Android game that they're putting out. Uh, and if you pre-register, you get access to a special ability in the game, uh, Cause Fear, I believe it was. Um, mm-hmm. And then they even... I think they more they zoned in a little bit more on when it's coming out. And I think they said, if I'm remembering correctly, um, this fall. And is what kind right? of game is it? Uh, it's it's a mobile game, so it's on you oh, know, your okay. your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. Yeah, it's some sort of battle type RPG right. online thing. I I don't really know the de. They haven't actually released a lot of details. Yeah, about and, and the information page about it is very. Sparse. sparse yeah yeah so but you know coming soon it says yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it could be cool you never know yeah i'm looking and again it's one of those things where the more they get the brand out there the better it is for everything right right so all right well my lightning round item is uh the fact that in case you didn't know if you've been living under a rock or if you were in India with Jeff um, <laughs> you might not have realized that um, Mike Merles and some of the R&D team from Wizards of the Coast actually were playing a a play test of A1 Slave Pits of the Undercity in video form. They actually live streamed it on, uh, they did the first session on I think July 12th and then for the next two Fridays after that they also did another session until they completed the, the actual adventure um, but what's, what I thought was really cool, uh, it, and if you missed the live stream they actually then released it a, a video so that you could actually get a feed of the video so you didn't have to see it live, you could see it after the fact and it's still up there, we'll put uh, you know, we'll put links in the show notes and they released um, the, the audio on their podcast feed, right? Well, no. On the podcast feed actually is an analysis. So it's an actual podcast episode where Mike – the first one is like Mike Merles and Rodney Thompson or Mike Merles and Greg Bilslin talking about what happened in the session and different things that they noticed while they're playtesting. So you sort of get an interesting – analysis of the playtest straight from the R&D guys who are playtesting and producing mm-hmm. the game. So it's a pretty cool thing. And they did three weeks in a row, and there's three videos and three separate analysis podcasts. So hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty, you know, if you're at all interested in game design and, and how to playtest things and, and how some of these people interact and, and how, you know, different decisions get made and what happens at the table. And, you know, some of the more interesting insights are things about how they approach the game and then how they try to step back and and put on their designer hat and say, okay, well, that's how I do it, but we need to make it accessible for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's to me, it's very interesting to hear those conversations. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I saw those um, come down the line, and I, I saw them on my podcast feed and all that. But again, mm-hmm. being being out of the country, I just hadn't a chan- had a chance to check them out yet. Sure. So. sure. I'm only, my my only disappointment is video is so much more difficult to consume. You know, mm-hmm. the yeah. audio the yeah, audio I can listen to wherever consuming. I go, but watching yeah. hours and hours of video content is difficult for me to find the time yeah. to do. And each of them is only two hours long, but still, that's six hours that's total. Six I mean, that's hours. that's a chunk, that's a chunk of time. You know, that's that, but you know. But that's why I appreciated the the podcast analysis because they sort of hit the highlights of well here's the interesting thing that happened or here's the interesting mm-hmm. thing we learned about this you know game in this particular session which I'll is, be cu- I'll be curious to see how much I enjoyed the analysis having not seen the video yeah or, or if yeah. it just gears me up for wanting to go out and see the video I don't know yeah we'll see. yeah interesting anyway well before we go uh, on to the in depth topics. Um, which were hard. How were they hard to choose? What do you mean they there were? There was hard a to lot choose? of interesting things to talk about this time around. So we had, oh, okay. It was, well, hard that, to, yeah, it was hard to pare it down. Okay, I'll agree with that then. Yeah, they were hard to choose. Um, but we should mention our sponsor, Noble Knight Games. Noble Knight Games is a brick and mortar store which also has a great online store, very good online presence, and they specialize in finding out of print gaming material. And they still carry new stuff too. But uh, if you want to make a big order of new stuff and old stuff, they're the place to go. Um, our episode, our pick of the episode this week is the Reader's Guide to the Legend of Drizzt. Uh, there's toys coming out and a Drizzt tale, Drizzt 
Drist. I don't know how people really pronounce that. <laughs> you're, you're doing brilliantly. You start with a D and then you just kind of yeah the drip. Yeah, the the drist tale is part of the sundering event coming up, and we know the sundering is going to be pretty awesome. Uh, so it seems apropos, of course, to help folks catch up on the character with uh, this book, The Reader's Guide to the Legends of Drist, which is only twenty dollars. So check out noblenight.com. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today! And be sure to tell them The Tome Show sent you. All right, into the in-depth topics. Let me get out my timer. Randall, you are starting us off talking about uh, the joy of playing monsters as player characters. You have 10 minutes, go. Yes, well, they're one of the articles, I think Morals wrote it, and I don't uh, have it. Well, in, I think it was a Wyatt James, article. Oh, it was, it was Wyatt, okay. I uh, apologize for that. I don't have the article up in front of me. July just, 2nd, for those who want to. There you go. Thank, thank you, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally unprepared tonight, yeah. Hey, um, you know, that's okay. That's all right. So, but the gist of it is this. Should you be allowed to play monsters as a player character? As everyone knows, you have you generally uh, split these things. The players usually play a player character race, which is specifically designated to be able to be played. Or you play, uh, there are some versions that have allowed you to, especially uh, uh the third edition and three five would allow you to play just about any monster. You could stat them up and you'd give them extra levels and and they you could had, play do anything. They have templates or something, right? Was it? Were they have? Oh yeah. Templates? Mean, yeah. Is that what it was? There, beyond templates, there was uh, an actual. I mean, there was always a, a little bit of an ability in third edition to do some of this. But then uh, a book called Savage Species came out, which was just a book full of rules and and stats for playing a whole bunch of different monster oh, monsters so as races. More more than templates, actual yeah. PC races. It was, it was okay. fully set it out, and, and so the way it worked out is it wasn't you know you were playing. Um, a dragon in all of its glory, but you gain sort of the draconic powers as you went up in levels. Okay. Um, is sort of how they did it in that. Sorry for so, the interrupt. My, no, my third fine. edition, my third edition ignorance is showing. Yeah. That's okay. Um, I have feels about this. <laughs> do you? Uh, I do. Are they, are they incorrect feels? No, they're completely <laughs> correct. Feels because, um, I like to have, my campaigns based in some kind of reasonable logic. Uh-huh. And societies develop in very specific ways. And Jeff, you're a student of history, and so you know that civilizations and things evolve in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And planets can get pretty crowded, and there's only so many, really, that can bring, come up to an intelligence level to, to develop full societies to be able to be used as player characters. Now, don't I know you're going to want to interrupt, and I'm going to give you <laughs> plenty of opportunity to rebut, but give me, just hear me out. I'm listening. Okay. While I don't have a necessarily inherent problem with the mechanics of someone running a monster character, that's not what bothers me. The logic part drives me crazy. And so if you have a campaign setting, for example, that's specifically designed to incorporate some kind of weird creature, let's say, for example, Dark Sun and the Thrykreen. Here you got a freaking insect guy, and he's okay because he's in this specific campaign setting that's been built around the development of that civilization and why Thrykreen exists, etc., etc., the same thing with, um, uh, I was trying to find another example off the top of my head, um, uh, Eberron and um, Goblins. Okay, I think they are playable, I think they're a playable race in Eberron. Mm-hmm. 
same kind of thing. They had actually a very sophisticated society and, um, you know, unusual before because goblins and most other editions were, you know, you beat your swords on them, basically what you did. <laughs> they're fodder. So, but in Eberron, they're a fully developed race that has a logical history and has been blended in with the rest of the societies. And, and that's okay. But if, but for me, unless you're in a campaign setting where it's either cross-dimensional or um, all of these kinds of settings intermix with each other, like, for example, on Sigil or something like that, to me, it's, it totally throws the logic off. There's no way I could build a world and incorporate some dude that wants to be a minotaur if I haven't developed a minotaur's civilization. And so that's, that's problematic for me as a DM. Um, and so and the world is, you know, that's mine. I don't mind the players giving me some input, but the world is mine. If you don't want to play in the world, that's great. Play in another game. That world is mine, and that's my creativity. And I've built these things. You know, if if someone has come along and at the very beginning of the of the world creation process and said, you know, I'm really looking forward to this, but man, I really wish I could play like a ladybug, you know, or whatever. And I, I then I could maybe come and say, okay, well, let's think about what it would take to create a ladybug species and how they would interact with the elves and dwarves and other things or whatever, and and then go from there. But uh, that's why, you know, if someone comes up to me and says, you know, I want to play, you know, a uh, uh, half mind flare, you know, drow or whatever, I'm going to go, I'm going to look at him and say, no, you're not. <laughs> you can play another game, <laughs> but then you're not going to play in this one. Not like that. So, and here's the reasons why. But that's what I have to say about that. I have pretty but strong feels. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Can't you say that while the game still has those things possible for other people to have in their own campaigns? I'm not sure what you mean. Well, you're saying that th this is an abomination that should not be happening. <laughs> um, I'm saying to, unless there's specific circumstances. Okay, right. I, I get it. And, and I understand your point of view, and I, I feel as actually... The, as the default, I, no. If that answers I, your question, no. Well, I, I feel like I, I feel very similar to you do about my own campaign world. However, I'm also a big proponent of put things out there that other people can use even if I'm not going to use them. Yeah, no. So my, so my question is, I understand your... Um, displeasure or your objection to the, to the idea of making the, the, the playing playable races or playable monstrous races, but why can't we have those in the game as, a, as an optional rule set so that others may option in while you're optioning out? Um, so, if sure. I, so if I want to run my homebrew game, and in my homebrew game, uh, gnolls are, make sense in, in that campaign setting, right. I have to have mechanics for that, and you're telling me I can't have those mechanics. Um, again, that's, okay, well, let's put it this way, as a, fine, as a module, or whatever they want to call yeah. those, as a supplement, optional, uh, as an optional add-on. An optional it's thing. Really yeah. And that's what they've always uh, been, in every edition. Well, you know, 3, 3.5 expanded it out quite a bit, even before, um, uh, Savage Races or anything like Savage that. Species, yeah. Yeah, it had a whole list in the DM guide of, of playable um, monsters. Uh, sort of, yeah, they were, they were like, sort of skeleton all, stats, yeah. Right, of humanoids. More like templates, right? Right, and they basically said, if you want to play a drought, you can, but you've got to add two levels. You've got to start mm -hmm. basically at third Absolutely. level. Those kinds of things. So that's always been there. I don't think it should be in the default rules. I think it should be as a supplement. But even uh, actually, but that, even that, then, in in the third edition, it was presented as a sort of option. It wasn't this. It didn't say this is the core way of playing the game, or they no, would, or they would have put in the play, player's handbook. Right, that's know? true. So that, no, that thing that. that you just mentioned, the level adjustment system, actually seemed to me to be to get the most sort of controversial conversation going. You know, in the comments and stuff of that article. Mm. Uh, because people said, well, they love the idea of these monstrous races becoming PCs, but as soon as you throw in a level adjustment system, it kind of throws the whole thing out of whack, which was the right. main sort of, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. displeasure. Yeah, the, the level adjustment system was not – it didn't have the level of fin finesse that needed. 
Because um, basically, I, w- I would end up playing a character. If I played a monstrous character and it had a level adjustment of two or whatever, I would end up playing a character that was two levels or three levels lower than everybody else to mm-hmm. balance out for the extra abilities I have, sure. Except mm-hmm. that some things like hit points and defenses and that kind of stuff, if you don't advance in those by those two levels, you, it doesn't matter what your special powers are. You just die. Right. You know, so there was there was some level of, of adjustment that needed to be done and, and never quite happened. But I think in any kind of system that does implement that kind of, uh, of character creation, I think there needs to be a lot, and I mean a lot, of discussion in the DM guide about how to build your campaign setting so that this monster race makes sense. Well, and that's the other thing I was going to address in, in your list of concerns, um, because it seems to me and and. and you're justified in those things, and as a historian and, and, as, and as a social scientist, right? I can I can recognize and appreciate that, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, it's a fantasy setting, and we sure. we constantly run into scads and scads of monstrous societies, you know. So it's the the world that you described has never been the world of D anD. d There's always been tribal societies of lizardmen and goblins and gnolls and. Every other freaking monstrous race on, that you could ever think of had some sort of society um, sure. and civilization. So the world, the fantasy world that we've been playing in D anD D, has always held thousands of different societies that, in the real world, would never make sense. Mm-hmm. No, so, I, I, I agree with that, and you're absolutely right about that, particularly about it being a fantasy. But when I think about the kinds, what it takes. Oh uh, well, there you go. I'm out of time. <laughs> no, go ahead. You get to finish the sentence. For what it takes to – when you think of the kinds of characters that are becoming PCs and the reasons they become PCs, I don't know. I just – I don't know. It goes against – and what's funny is because my first inspiration for D&D was a novel by Quag Keep and one of the main characters in that. If you can think of the main characters as the PCs in the book, mm-hmm. it was a lizard man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So – even despite that, though, there's something that really grates against, you know, we have all these races. I mean, if they're going to create a specific monster race, then put it in the rules as a playable race. Sure. And, and so that way we can start, our, start from that square. Yeah, but that almost complicates things even more because if it's a playable race as a DM, sometimes it's a little bit harder. If it's just a straight up statted out playable race, it's a little bit – it's a level – extra level of restriction to say, no, you can't do this. If it's an optional thing from the beginning, then it's a little easier to say we're not playing with that option. So, And there are certain races I think that are very – you know, I think would be easily converted. Yeah. There's no reason why goblins couldn't be – in fact, in my own campaign setting – Goblins are a they're a merchant class. Well, as I look at the you know, as I look so, at the article, he he categorizes it into three different categories: the dirt simple humanoids, mm-hmm. orcs, mm-hmm. goblins, gnolls, right. bugbears. I think we can all sort of agree that, that those mm-hmm. are pretty easily put in without much problem. The right. more complicated humanoids, like the, the examples they give, are ogres and pixies. I don't have a problem with those, but I could see where some people would. And and, you, and as a DM, you thoroughly have the authority to, to restrict that, right? Right. Uh, the, when you get into the, the, quote, rest of the monster manual, you mm-hmm. know, playing a blink dog or a unicorn, yeah, that's where I personally also start to have issues, right? Right. Um, because then it's a power. Then I think it's a I power did, I, grab on the part of the player. Well, sometimes it is. Um, yeah. I just have a yeah. I have an issue with it as a player. I've never wanted to, to go that far um, as to play at a complete non-humanoid. Um, but ultimately, I mean, we, in in modern gaming, it's very common for players to add to the campaign into the campaign world with the guidance and and the veto power of the DM, right? To say, hey, I want to play this thing and I want it to be a unique situation, and and here's you know how we can add to the world to have this make sense and all that kind of stuff. And I think if somebody's willing to do that level of work and work with the DM to make it make sense, there's a lot of things that I can that I can tolerate, and if I if I have the rules for it, I can do that stuff. If I don't have the rules, it's a lot harder to make it happen. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that uh, I mean, here's one example where I think it would work really well. A campaign setting like the, um, uh, what is it, the uh, Wheel, is it Wheel World? There's a science fiction book where it's, oh, Ring World. Yeah. Oh, Ring World, yeah. Ring World, where you have a whole bunch of different species of aliens. Some are like leaf people, and some are, you know, animals, and some are all, all kinds of weird things. But they're all sort of, if you will, adventuring together or trying to find out what's going on. Um, and but they are all brought together into one place, and so it's art. It, it, the it's an artificial construct, and that explains why they can all be together. Mm-hmm. 
But, that, um, but that's, you know, but that's the exact point, right? Yeah. That's the exact I don't think most campaign settings are built like that. Though. Sure. But as long as you and your DM and your players can make it make sense and it works in your game, then why not have the rules to support that if that's what you choose to do? You know, I, I, w- I would rather have the rules and then as a DM <clears throat> say we're not playing with those rules than not have them and never have the option. My final you know, word would be I want to see it as a supplement, yeah, but sure. built up around the DM guide and never be put in the player's handbook. Yeah, I don't have a problem I, with that. I, I have two sentences. The first one is, you know, there is a Ringworld RPG. It was put, <laughs> out, I, it was put out in Chaosium in 1984. And you probably own it, don't you? I, I do. <laughs> uh, it was, it's not very good, although the, the, the races and stuff are interesting, but it, the, the RPG is not very good. Uh, sorry, Larry Niven and Chaosium. Um, that's the same group that does Call of Cthulhu Chaosium, mm-hmm. just by the way, people who yeah. want to know. Uh, the second thing is, the problem I actually had with this article really has nothing to do with the content of the article. The problem is, I feel like, why are they discussing this? <laughs> I mean, I just, I feel like, I don't know if there was like a clamoring from fans to discuss how this is going to be done in, in D&D Next or what, but I feel like it's hard enough to get the regular classes and races down. And, and I feel like they're still making changes to those. So why are we discussing monster races? Like I, I just, it was it just as an, as an offhand sort of, sort of comment. The horse, isn't it? Yeah. I, I yeah. feel like, you know, how can they talk about how complex it's going to be or not complex it's going to be to, to make some of these into races when we don't even have ours all set yet. Right. I mean, the regular quote unquote regular races. I just, well, that's my only offhand comment. My, my only thought on that is that that you know they're in a very different place for what they're starting to design versus oh, what, sure. what we're yeah. seeing. So th- you know yeah. they could very well be starting to contemplate this and mm-hmm. wanted to get some ideas about what people were thinking before they went yeah. too far. So sure. I, I don't have an issue with that. Yeah. Oh, you know, I don't do, have an issue. I just it's just a thought that struck me as I was reading. Oh, sure. It. So do you know the name of that Ringworld game? Yeah, Ringworld. It's just called Ringworld. Okay. Yep. I was trying checking to see if Noble Knight had it. <laughs> it's a it's a hefty expensive uh, it, wow yeah. shout out to 1983 <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty uh it's yeah very it's good pretty involved all right well time good ran discussion. out on this time ran out on this conversation a while ago so yes, i'm gonna right. i'm gonna go next and i am going to discuss the article called the mini worlds of D from the first uh this is a legends and lore article um, basically discussing their concepts and their, their ideas right now for the new cosmology of D&D um, in that as often as possible, they want it to make sense for pretty much everything from every edition to make sense in this, in this sort of um, – in, the, in their new cosmology. And they sort of open it up to, to – or co- give the caveat – I don't know if it was in the actual article or if it was later in the, um, the Q&A article – um, that where they address this a little bit as well, um, but they discuss you know with some obvious exceptions where it doesn't make sense. You know there are some worlds that have a specifically different cosmology for a very specific reason. You know and and so let's not try to necessarily squeeze them into this larger cosmology um, if we don't you know if it doesn't make sense. But I mean I w- the the thing that excited me the most about it is they're basically bringing back Planescape. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, it says, you know, that for the Outer Plains, Planescape is the default assumption. The Great Wheel, the Blood War, all of that stuff is back into D&D, which is I'm awesome. on board with it. I can uh, be on board with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited about that. And, and they even go so far as to talk about Spelljammer. That, you know, spell, Spelljammer raises some concerns because they don't necessarily like the idea of using Spelljammer to travel to the, the Forgotten Realms and, and O-Earth and, and you know, all the other worlds, like Spelljammer always said you could, because that was never really what was cool about Spelljammer anyway. Spelljammer was cool because it was D&D in space. Um, and so they wanted to sort of focus Spelljammer stuff sort of on that rather than on the concept of traveling from world to world to world and, and watering it all down. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've got a, a system set up where, it, you know, the elemental planes are a little bit different. Um, the elemental planes are basically set up in three rings now. There's the border planes, which are sort of in between the, the elemental planes and the prime material, where it actually makes sense for a lot of these elemental creatures that we've had for edition after edition after edition, where it makes sense for them to actually be. You know, the example they give was the was it the Azur. Yeah, the Azur, which are like fire dwarves, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't make a ton 
ton of sense for them to exist in a plane that's, that is literally just fire all the time, right? Where do they stand? <laughs> what, how can they craft things? There's nothing there, all right? But so the Azur makes it, they make a lot of sense on sort of these border this border plane between fire and the prime material, where it's, which is full of you know lava flows and volcanoes and, and all kinds of stuff like that, right. totally makes sense for them to be there doing their thing. Um, then the the sort of uh, deeper elemental planes are the classic elemental plane, right? The plane of fire that's literally just all fire, uh, and then the outer part of the elemental planes is the elemental chaos that we were introduced to in fourth edition. Where all the energies of the of the planes are all sort of mixing and mashing together out on this outer sort of ring, right? So yeah. that so that's how they sort of take that take all the different concepts of the different editions and suddenly try to make it make sense in in one cosmology. And I think that does it pretty well. I I, I would see that part of it, at least the elemental plane part of it, a little overcomplicated. Yeah, but, well, yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I think that they explained it very complicatedly, but, you know, in the following week's article, he talks about it again. And then and then a couple weeks later, James Wyatt in another Wandering Monster article, he talks about salamander, salamanders mm-hmm. and, and talks about them and their existence on the plane of fire and how it also doesn't make sense for them to just be swimming through fire. Like, so they can set up a whole area where it makes sense for the salamanders to be, which I think is the Sea of Ash or something. Uh, but, yeah, so mm-hmm. – so they talk about it in a very complicated way in terms of presentation first, but then I think the articles, the, the articles subsequently actually made it a little simpler. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, also, I, I he, think the, w- once I had a time to sort of chew on it a little bit, it made a lot more mm-hmm. sense. And and actually, I, I started in my head, I started doing some of the old Planescape sort of uh, mapping. Mm-hmm. Of the planes, you know, I, I, it, yeah. you know, the same style of artwork sort of appeared in my head, mapping it out, and it's like, oh yeah, well now I get it, and it sort of makes sense. I get that. Mm-hmm. There was one very controversial thing that he said in this article that you didn't mention. Uh, I was going to continue, but okay, go were, ahead. Were you going to talk about Ravenloft? Yep. Yeah, because I and I noticed that it, that showed up again in the Q and A as well. That you know what they've kind of gone back on the issue of Ravenloft and well, they're trying to figure the, out how it fits in and all that. Yeah. The whole ne- the next week, he had to open his following article by saying, "Okay, you know that stuff we said about Ravenloft yeah. and the Shadowfell. That's all still up in the air. It's it's maybe that's where I saw it. Yeah, way. yeah, it's it's not really going to happen that way because there was such a huge response to that. Yeah. Um, I guess in what way? Well, okay, so here's how they sort of uh, yeah. dealt with some of these things. Um, there's there's just one short paragraph where they talk about, but you know, the same way they're doing the the elemental planes, the inner planes, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing the the border between the prime material and the positive energy plane is the Feywild, and then the border between the negative energy plane and the prime material is Ravenloft. And the, oh, that's the, interesting. And that the Shadowfell is one of the domains of Ravenloft. A subdomain. Yeah. So Raven, Ravenloft is the dreaded domain. Right. And Raven and sorry, the Shadowfell is a subdomain within Ravenloft. And I think that's what people And were I can I can see where that would be controversial because if you, yeah. you even if you look at the original cosmology of Ravenloft, mm-hmm. Raven, the ra- domains of Ravenloft were always sort of sub to the plane of shadow. Sure. So this just sort of takes what was always true about Ravenloft and flips it to yeah. the, to the reverse, which you know, why do that? Well, I think what I th- I'll, I yeah, can speculate. I'll speculate why I think they know that Ravenloft is very popular, and they wanted to be able to make it big so that they could exploit that if they needed to. Yeah, I don't know. I um, just feel like the Ravenloft the, is also very specific. It's a very specific thing, and it doesn't need to be a blanket yeah. that covers everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't disagree. I'm just I'm just speculating on why they might have thought that it would be cool sure. to sort of highlight Ravenloft because the Shadowfell is sort of this big place and you know, even when in fourth edition when they when they sort of had a supplement of the Shadowfell, it was really like about a few locations and it wasn't you know, it was a great supplement, but yeah. It wasn't, you know, this all-encompassing giant thing. And I think what they did was they said, well, here we've got Ravenloft and here we've got the Shadowfell. We don't want to get rid of either one. What should we do? Hey, how about this idea? And yeah. there was a huge backlash. Yeah, I think, That's did, where I, I would, think they just did their idea, idea the, the flip way they should. Mm-hmm. So, so it's going back the other way then? 
Whereas it'll well, they just sort of said it's all, they just sort of said it's all still up in the air. So I think yeah. what they'll end yeah. up doing is they're going back to the way I, I'm assuming they're going to end up going back to the way it was. I mean, you don't need Ravenloft to be the big plane for it to be a big deal. You know, yeah. the, the Forgotten Realms is a huge money maker for them too, and it's extremely popular. But it's not the prime material world. It's one of many prime right. material worlds. You know, right? But I, I also think they're trying to set apart this edition, right? They 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 want to make certain changes that make this edition different from everything else. Oh, I feel so. like they want to make make changes to in this edition to make it include everything else. Yeah. You know, everything yeah. everything from every other, other edition right? as much as they can to make sense in this edition. I and agree. This would be my suggestion is that I think they're trying too hard. <laughs> um, I think they're it's a very it's very wishy-washy to say well, let's just throw everything in there. Have some guts, cut some shit out that didn't work. Excuse my language. May have to bleep that, that's fine. But come on, guys. Man up and cut something. It's okay. Well, I think we'll if, move on with it. Or if someone wants to keep it in there in their games, they'll keep it in there. And I and I, and I agree. <laughs> if it is wishy washy and there's not a really good reason to that, that works that makes sense, then yeah, I don't have a problem with them cutting things out and and forging into to something new. That said, I like this cosmology and I think it does make sense and it does sort of allow. A lot of the old stuff, maybe not everything, but ninety percent of the old stuff makes sense within this set setup. You know, obviously, there's some areas where you you have to change things, right? Because um, there were creatures in fourth edition that switched from you know demon to devil or back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. And, and others where they weren't, right? So you can't have it both ways there, right? But they can, uh, you know, they can at least be as inclusive as you can be for the things that don't directly contradict. As long as it makes sense story-wise, and I feel like this does. Did they say anything about the astral plane? They did not. Mm-hmm. I was Yeah, because I was wondering about astral, ethereal, and shadow. Well, shadow fell, become shadow or whatever. Um, we're always sort of those transitory border planes, and, and they're not really discussed. Mm. So I'm curious how that's going to work. Because astral was always the connection between the prime material and the, the great outer wheel planes. outer planes. And, and ethereal mm-hmm. was the connection to the inner planes, if I'm rem- remembering right. That's correct, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. Well, I think they ran into some snags. And I think that... Um, <laughs> to say the least. Well, yeah. And, but I just mean, you know, and that's why it's not mentioned yet. I think it really it's probably in its very earliest stages of of trying to be you know, dealt with. Well, and what's more, I feel like having three different transitory planes, shadow, ethereal, and astral was a, probably a little overly complicated anyway. And, and talking about cutting stuff out, I think that's what a place where they could probably cut and be safe. Yeah. yeah. And I have four seconds left. So if anybody has anything to say in the last two seconds. All right. That's time. <laughs> that takes um, it to Sam. All right. Well, I am going to mention very briefly the Legends and Lore article from July 15th, and then I'm going to spend most time on the most recent article from July 22nd. So just want to briefly mention on July 15th, uh, Mike Merles did a Legends and Lore article about feats and basically reiterated that feats are definitely going to be meant as an optional part of the game. Um, And he talks about how they intend to keep them optional and... Uh, he says, uh, basically, feats are going to be interchangeable almost with um, with attribute score increases. And so because of that, because the feat would be optional rather than an attribute store score increase, the feat has to be equal in power to an ability score boost, which gives them a very clear design target when they make a feat. And also... It's optional in, in such a way that you don't even have to select a feat if you don't want to at every level that you would get a feat, which is not every level, but every level that a feat would be provided. Instead of taking a feat, you could, even if the other players are taking a feat, a player at the table could actually take an attribute increase, and it would not reduce their effectiveness. In other words, it would be equal in power. Um, okay. And then he, he gave a couple of different feat examples, um, right. but really the long and short of it is they're still really working on feats and they're still trying to really figure out how to make it all work. Yeah, and it's tricky because I, they've done, they basically said that you're going to get a plus two uh, ability score boost at certain points in the game or you can take a feat. And I thought it was, I think they reduced it to a plus one. I'm looking at the article right now. And it says nope. pl- it says plus oh, two to plus, plus two, two to one ability or plus one to two. 
Um, oh, yeah. You're or, right. Or, plus or you can yeah. choose a feat instead, which yeah. is a not insignificant mm-hmm. bump, especially in this right. in this edition where yeah. there's a pretty strong cap on the, a lot of these mm-hmm. things. Um, and then my other issue is that the feats that they list as examples are really not complex. exemplary of what he's talking about. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. I know. That's I why mean, I only wanted to touch on this for a minute because that's why I say really the takeaway from this article for me was they're really still working on this. I hope really- so because I, I think I liked older <laughs> older versions of feats better than what I'm seeing in this article. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I having now played all these versions, I don't really care for feats. Yeah, I'm, I, I usually I'm, am not a feat I'm person. kind of done with feats. Oh, see, um, I like feats. Um, and I think it, when they put out the character builder and start gathering their stats, they're going to find the vast majority of people are using them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, the thing is, as a DM, I don't like feats, but my players all love feats. Right. No, I I love feats either way, but these specific feats examples are really fiddly and easy to forget, and you know, not the right. kind of feats that I'm particular. You know, if I if my choice is a plus two bonus to strength or either one of these feats, I'm going to take the bonus to strength mm-hmm. pretty much every time. And and I think that's why I say that he's really they're really noodling through this because. I don't think they've reached a point where it's an equal choice at this point. And I, I think he's he actually is acknowledging that and basically saying it's a work in progress. Yeah, I hope so. so. But here's the thing. I hope yeah. the feats aren't like this. Whereas, you know, let's say one guy decides to take his bonus in strength, and then another guy has a feat that's called Bear's Strength. Okay, if they do that kind of crap, that's going to suck. No, that's, and that's not what I'm saying. No, no, no. no. It's, it's, yeah, no. it's, 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 and he's, know. he's saying that it won't be like that. Right. And, and what you're, okay. like, the example they give is, is a great weapon master. So you become proficient in heavy martial weapons, plus you can double your damage. It basically adds a sort of a power attack thing. You can double your damage by taking a minus five to an attack roll. Um, and if you score a critical or drop a creature, then you can take an additional attack. So it's kind of um, what Great Cleave it's like as well. A tr- tr- it's a three-fold. Yeah, it's thing. like three three feet sort of rolled into one from previous editions. Mm. Okay. Anyway, so let's move on to the next yeah, article. You want to talk I, about to me, list. the next article is very much more interesting because I think it's, it's uh, more controversial. So on July 22nd, he talked about how um, they are trying to find ways to bake in role-playing um, incentives into the core rules. And two things he talked about. First, during normal character generation, they're going to introduce things called bonds, flaws, and ideals. And so as part of character creation, you'll flesh out bonds with other characters and ties to the world um, and people and places and things, etc., etc. A flaw or two that your character has and an ideal that your character has. Now these are complete fluff. There no, there's no nothing mechanical about these at all. But you would, you know, he he says there's going to be tables and you can randomly determine these or you can pick them on your own or whatever. Um, and so that's going to enhance role playing. But the second thing is has a mechanical benefit, and that is that um, if you what you want to do as a DM if you want to get good role playing from your players is to reward good role playing. And the way that you do that is. By handing out something that they are calling inspiration. Mm-hmm. Basically, this is a Benny. It's a little chip, and what it does is it, it gives you a very tiny mechanical effect for a very short amount of time. It's either going to give you like a bonus to hit, or maybe it'll give you advantage on a roll that's yeah. coming up. I think they described um, it as, as generally as, as it gives you advantage on, on something. Right. Right, it gives you advantage, basically. Um, it's very short-lived, so it really will only last for a couple of minutes. Um, also, they're trying to think about ways about you know how players could vote or, or give bennies, give their bennies, basically their inspiration to other players and things like that. Mm-hmm. But the, the reason this is controversial is twofold. The first is that bonds, flaws, ideals, and these bennies, these inspiration chips, really, they are ideas that that they spring from ideas that are rooted in different systems, mm-hmm. right? Bond, bonds are rooted in dungeon world. Aspects of fate are, you know, and savage worlds all have, you know, flaws and ideals. They're not necessarily named those things, but that's what they are. Um, I mean, and so, but and that that said, well, well those, let those, me finish. Okay, go ahead. Let him finish. Let him finish. So. Some people, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just, because what I do is I, when I read these articles, now I go and I read the first two, three pages of comments because I'm trying to take the temperature of what people are thinking about these. Mm-hmm. Lots of people objected because these ideas seem cannibalized from other games. They don't belong in D&D, blah, blah, blah. Um, and other people 
They didn't care that they were cannibalized from other games. Their problem is it's baked into the core. You're going to make that baked into the core, but you're leaving feats and the huge skill system out as optional systems. Mm -hmm. And the response to that from a lot of people is, well, who cares if their idea is rooted in other games? They're good ideas, and if they can work in D&D, why not have them? And people have been using these ideas in their D&D right. for exactly. ages. People have been, been mixing and matching different tiny little systems for a yeah. long time. I mean, so. this stuff like this has been, I mean, throwing a chip at somebody for, for as a reward for, you know, here's a plus two and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been doing that since second edition. Right. So. But, you know, so, so the, I think the real, the actual root of the problem is, you know, there's lots of talk about, well, what should be core? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we we just did it when we were talking about the monsters as PC races. We said, well, okay, it's a great yep. idea, and it shouldn't be core though. And so some people are saying, well, you're leaving feats out of the core. You're you're going to leave monsters out of the core. It's optional. You're going to leave all these things out of the core, but you're going to in, incorporate something that's all new and is from other systems anyway. And it's not, you know, their stated goal was let's make a D and D for all people that that's all you know system wide D and D. And yet they're adding in things that isn't isn't from any other previous edition of D and D. Now I, I'm not espousing that idea. I'm just saying these are some of the sure, no, no. things I've been hearing. And, and and I get that, and it occurs to me at the same time that at the same, it's also a mechanic entirely in the hands of the DM. Mm-hmm. Like well, that's it, that was my response. It is yeah. optional because the DM can option out of actually yeah, the, giving. The, the DM things. can just like, never give it. That? No yeah, worry about exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, and the other stuff is—it's really just—and he makes this point as well. The other stuff, the the bonds, the flaws, and all that—is really just an extension of some background or some information about your character that that builds off of alignment. You know, maybe right. we start with alignment to get an idea for your character. But you know, as everybody knows, lawful good is not the same for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So these things will give us some other ideas about who your character is. You guys, you guys are too nice. Okay, <laughs> you guys are too forgiving. This crap I, does not belong in D&D, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. Come on, Gargar, give it to I, us. I knew you were going to have a problem with this, so that's And you know I, what? And while I don't – and I'm going to call him out specifically, but I actually enjoyed Angry DM's rant on this the other day on <laughs> Twitter. Oh, I missed it. Yeah, and it was basically what he said is that, you know what? This is what role-playing is. Role-play. You don't need these kinds of rules to role-play. Uh-huh. <laughs> the DM says, here's what's happening. The players say, I do this, and the DM responds <laughs> to that. You don't need really anything else, and I really hope I'm not misrepresenting his argument, but I'm pretty sure I'm dead on. <laughs> you don't. All these things are great for storytelling games which need some kind of framework to be able to tell the story. That's fantastic. That's not what D&D is. And you can uh, throw this kind of stuff in, but it sure as hell doesn't belong into the core. And even as a supplement, it's like, really? Because that's really not what we're playing. <laughs> sure. Well, and, and my only response to that, and because I, I totally get that, my only response to that is that one of the big criticisms that people have had about D&D since first edition is that there's no mechanic, especially as newer edition, new games uh, and new mechanics have, have come out and people have had more experience with these things, is that D&D has never, as, a, as sort of the iconic role-playing game, has never mechanically supported role-playing. And this is, I, I, I sort of see them as... as playing with that idea of, well, how can D&D be D&D and support role-playing? And this is sort of what they're toying with and thinking about as they look at well, this. I think, I think what it is is, and let me just paraphrase what you're saying, but from a slightly different point of view. Yeah. D&D never had these things because D&D never needed these things, but right. it never needed them because it didn't know it needed them. This is where oh. the problem comes in. No, no, no. I know, I know, I know. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just saying, right? Okay, okay. This is, this is the reason why they're throwing this in. The thing is, it never knew it didn't need. It ne- never knew it didn't have these and needed them because there weren't a ton of other games out there that used these sorts of methods that were now competing with D and D. Now that is now we're in a different world. This is the case that there are a ton of these other games out that have these cool role playing systems and that D and D should take advantage of that and try to work some of that back into the core so that D and D seems like a modern game, even though lots of the mechanics are hearkening back to the older editions. I completely see that argument. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I completely see it as a valid argument. Mm -hmm. If you're on a design team trying to create the next iteration of a game and trying to bring it into a more modern stance while maintaining the sort of historical stance, then 
I can see why they're doing it. And I can also, I mean, and, and it, it's one of those things that really doesn't bother me either way. And I don't know if I'll use it or not. But that's the point, is that it doesn't matter because they can put it in the core and it's still entirely in my hands as the DM to decide whether I'm going to use it. But I guess the only thing is, is that those kinds of games, storytelling games arose because people wanted to be able to play a role-playing game without being fettered, if you will, by all of the mechanical issues involved in the game. If you don't want the mechanical issues, play a story game. That's great. Those are awesome. I've played them myself. I enjoy them. But... (laughs) Well, let's let's not let's not, let's not get too hyperbolic here, Andy. But what, what about <laughs> this, Savage this, this Worlds? Savage this, Worlds is this, very can be very crunchy, and it has bennies. It has bennies. This, this mechanic does not turn D and D into a story game. It adds a little no, element from story that. games. It's not changing the nature of the yeah. game. It's adding a little thing onto it that that may be useful to some people. I don't know. I I, I still think that there is this. I'm getting a this distinct impression that they're trying to throw everything into the pot. And I think that's a mistake. I think it's a design mistake. It's a flawed methodology. Well, and part of the Choose tr- something for right or yeah. wrong, but choose something. Part of the trick and at this point is that we're, we're seeing a lot of stuff, and they're throwing a lot of stuff at us in the last few months. Yeah. And we have no idea, for some of it, we have no idea what's actually going to end up being core and what, what isn't. Yeah. I, my only hope, then, is that they've got a clear vision somewhere and that we're just seeing various... Like well, trailings, like from a comet or whatever. So let me let me actually let me actually just respond to what Jeff just said. You're right that lots of what we're seeing, we're not sure it's going to be in the right. core. But he specifically says this in this is. article, this it will be in the core. Yeah, I know he does. Yeah. So some things you're right, we don't know. But this, it's going to be in the core. See, sure. my my thing is, is so my small. problem. It's so small. It. Per- <laughs> my personal, perception is reality. Yeah, perception is reality. My my personal problem with it is. If I want to play a game with Bennies, I have other games I can play with Bennies. If I want to play a game with some other thing, I have other things I can play. But I'm different from the majority because the majority don't have five bookcases worth of RPGs to choose from. The majority of players that they are targeting are only playing one game mm-hmm. or maybe two. And so for them, this may work and it may not, and as long as they realize that they can decide not to use those, then I'm fine with it being in the core because yeah. I I know I already know I can decide not to use it. It's an it's an extremely hackable mechanic. I mean, I can very easily completely hack it out or change it. Or I mean, there's so many things. I mean, it's such a simple, tiny little mechanic. It's so easy to to leave in, leave out, or modify. I guess my issue is. I hope they do a better presentation of this sort of mechanic than they did of skill challenges in yes. early fourth edition. <laughs> Agreed. That's that's my problem. Is how are they going to present this? I hope everything that they give us in D and D next is better than what we got from skill challenges. Yeah, I but mean, I'm but you know what I'm saying though. Yeah, like absolutely. I, if it, this is one of the more controversial points, and I'm sort of on the fence because I I'm sort of with Randall in my heart. Like I don't want this in D and D, but like I said, I sort of have a more modern, realistic perspective. You know what? I know I don't need it, but maybe some other person will find it really cool in their yeah. game. So I'm okay with it being well, there. And ultimately, my my concern with it is that as I look at it, it's like as a DM. I just don't know when to do it and when not to do it. So I better I better right. have some really good guidelines as to what the heck they're talking about and how to, right. how to well, pull it off. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. See, and that's that's the thing about Savage Worlds has those binnies and it gives yeah. good concrete advice about when to give them and when not. Yeah. Whereas D&D, I don't see any new mechanics built around telling me when to give those and when not because the mechanics we have are D&D mechanics. Right. See, to me, the we'll binny is, is the DM's best friend. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. page 51 or page 43 or whatever it was. When you feel like you need to, add a plus two bonus. Mm-hmm. That's a Benny. Done. Okay? We've done that. We know what that is. Well, that's all this the, is. No, right. to me, well, the, the other the, part, the way this they... this is you give it to the player, and then they get to choose when to use it, rather than yeah. the DM choosing that, that, That's... I mean, we've been doing that for decades. But even still, to me, it sounds like they're trying to attract a group of people that they feel have left the game in favor of story games... But those people left D&D for specific reasons and not because it didn't have these kinds of story-making rules in it. That well, wasn't yeah, the reason. I, I don't know that that's <laughs> – I don't feel like that's necessarily – I think, but I think it's more of them responding to the, the idea that D&D is sort of the, the iconic role-playing game and it has never had very good mechanics to support and encourage role-playing. I feel like it's a response to that criticism more than it is trying to win back the story gamers. 
Oh, see, I'm a little more cynical. I feel like it's the yeah. response to fourth edition didn't that's have like, any role playing. Yeah, uh, exactly. no, no, I think that's, that's part exactly of it. Exactly well. what it is for me. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think I, I think it's a pure response to the fourth edition backlash. I really do. I, th- I, th- I, th- I, th- I don't think, think it has a- anything to do with the editions before fourth edition. Oh, I th- I think nobody complains about the lack of role playing rules in third edition. Nobody complained about those. Oh, yes, there weren't any. Oh, yes, they did. I've been hearing edition. about it since second edition. No, no, no. Yes, I have. No. Well, we run in different circles then because I've been hearing yeah. about it for ages. Now, fourth edition had a much louder voice against it, and probably for decent reasons because it was it was very focused on certain things, right? But or rather, the the things it was focused on was a lot more intensive, I should say. Yeah. But. Well, second edition with all the splat books and kits, that seemed like players had a lot to play with, mm-hmm. and they could utilize all those things to enhance role playing and mechanics. Mm-hmm. So you didn't hear a big complaint about how there was no role playing anymore in second edition. The, the I mean, may, maybe maybe at the be- I mean at the beginning of any new edition, you always hear grumblings. But throughout fourth edition's whole five year span, you always heard that complaint from lots of different people. Right, right, right. No, and, and the, I think there's the, lots of reasons for that, but we don't need to delve yeah, into all of that. Yeah. The big irony here is that at the beginning of of, of announcing D and D next and talking about what they wanted to do with it, one of their biggest things, and the thing I jumped up and down in, with glee about, was. <laughs> Bringing back DM agency, mm-hmm. and it sounds like they're slowly carving back that um, uh, initial image. How and it, all of these how other does things. This, how does this address that? Monsters as monsters as player characters, player agency, um, being able to give Benny's back and forth between characters, player agency. But there's a bunch of things but here. There's a more simple. But both of those are are, are at the caveat of the DM. Yeah, I the still. D, the DM, but gets, it's yeah. gets but it's the in the, the core. DM but it's in the core, Jeff. That's the problem. It's in the That's core. The so if the it's core the says, core. if the core says, the DM will choose to give inspiration chips uh-huh. to their players, and the players can do A, B, C, D, or E with these chips. The players will expect that. Okay, and because it's, it's in the, the core, DM, but it's still and, up to DM the, to do it, right? Right. But but here's the thing. But but the difference is in the older editions, DM Fiat said, "I'm going to choose when to give that plus two or that minus two, and I'm going to say here that plus two applies or here it doesn't, and that's it. No questions asked." The inspiration chip says, oh, I decide this player did something cool. I'm giving him this chip, and now the player decides. So that's directly moving that power from the DM to the player. You're right that the, the DM had to decide to give that chip, but I'll guarantee you that if mm-hmm. the players figure out a way to use those inspiration chips to great effect, they're going to get really mad if they expect to have those because they're in the core, and the DM says, oh, you know, we're not using that, even though it's in the core. Yeah, I, I don't see it much different than... Uh, people in third edition who used to give out uh, free action points for p- characters who did cool things to to use as they see fit. It, it, it feels very similar to me. In fact, this is, if anything else, a lot less powerful and a lot is smaller, that, smaller is that, mechanic. Is that in the core? No, and it wasn't in the core. Okay, well, so that's the that's the difference that we're, that Randall's talking about, though. No, I get, yeah. I, yeah. I honestly don't care if it's in the core or not because it's such a tiny little mechanic that it's so easy to just ignore if you don't like it. No, but it's one more penny on the giant stack of pennies away from DM agency, which is yeah. what Randall's main complaint was. Yeah. And like I said, it, you know, I make it sound worse than probably what it really will be right. and whatever the final version will be. But I just – I really have concerns that they've waffled a lot and that they are trying to please everybody. And I don't think you're going to end up with a – at this point, I kind of want a game that we've – that we have some clear cut decisions made that didn't try to, I want to, I wanted to fix what was broken and leave everything else that wasn't broken alone. And I, and they're not doing that. <laughs> and that's what's driving <laughs> that's, me crazy. That's the call of every D and D player well, <laughs> since just, 1976. Just, well, I know that. What I can, and that's, yeah. What I know I can, I'm shouting to yeah. the wind on that one. I just, yeah. What I can tell you as, as somebody who's been, been running a, a playtest game, using the D&D Next mechanics, is that I feel a lot more DM agency, if only because of the, the skill and ability score mechanic, and that everything goes, goes on to that, and it's all a lot more freeform, and it gives me a lot more freedom as a DM to make calls about, yeah, I do this or do that or make this roll or whatever, instead of them pulling up mechanics. Right? It's all a lot more open, a lot, more, uh, a lot less defined. That, yeah, there is a lot more of that, and that is true. And the D&D Next games that I'm playing as well, 
I'm that's that's working really well. So I, just, I don't have the concerns because my experience is things are actually going well. I have a very interesting experiment that's about to start, and that is that on Sunday, my my game uh, group that used to be playing 4E, we switched to 5th edition. So sun, this coming Sunday is our first 5th edition game, or D&D Next game. And I'm also, in two or three weeks, starting to DM a, a separate group using basic D&D. Mm. So simultaneously, I'm running two campaigns, one in 5th edition, one in basic. So we'll see how differences are you know there is one caveat to everything that we're saying here at the end though and that is we don't know how new players are going to deal with this like we keep we keep falling back on yeah it's in the core but i know i i don't need to use it or i don't you know i've i know what works for my group or i know this or i know that or i can do that thing and that is not a perspective i've had for over 20 years right yeah and i haven't had the player perspective you know, for many years either. I mean, that's why I play a lot of different games so that I can get new player perspective a little bit on, you know, mm-hmm. different games. But it's never quite the same. Like, I, I cannot get new player perspective on D&D, even on 5th edition, even in this play test, because I've already played D&D for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just very... Yeah. All right. Well, the time ran out on this topic a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, we controversial. It, but which is fine because we were way under an hour and now we're right at an, an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Good. But good, dis- good discussion, I think. It yeah. was. It was good discussion. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, given that, we want to thank our sponsor, Noble Knight Games, as well as every one of our listeners for supporting us. Uh, please go shop at Amazon and dndclassics.com through our affiliate links. Just go to the website and then click and then go buy whatever you want, uh, and we'll get a few pennies for it. That's right. Um, over at thetomeshow.com. And also, you can get a hold of us at thetomeshow.com or email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Or you can call the biz line, the famous, famous Tome Show biz line at 919 Biz Tome. That's 919 B I Z T O M E. All right. Uh, so until next time, this is Jeff Greiner signing out for myself, Sam Dillon, and our man on the streets uh, in Sigil. Still Don- a donut. <laughs> still, which, which is still a donut. Thank you, Randall Walker. Keep on gaming, Tomites.